Hey, before we kick off this week's podcast, we have a favor to ask of our listeners. Um, We need you to tell us something that you don't like about our government. Right, Jeff? Well, not just that you don't like, but you feel is bizarre, weird, unexplainable, doesn't make common sense. Because we're going to cover on our next show. What I have my idea what the weirdest fact about American government is, and I'm going to share that. We'd like for you to share your opinion. And we'll cover those on the show. We'll give you, we might even say your name and make you famous. So send us a tweet. Uh, you can reach us at History Politics and Beer uh, on the good old Twitter or drop us a line on email, History Politics and Beer at Gmail. Thanks a lot. And now this week's show. Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Hey, thanks for joining us again, boys and girls. This is your homegrown, 100% all-natural, organic podcast um, and today we are going to be tackling the death penalty and the Eighth Amendment and cruel and unusual punishment. But before we get to cruel and unusual punishment, we have to take care of uh, the beer part of the podcast and talk about the beer that Jeff Hudson brought today. Uh, it's in a nice, really fresh looking, sort of hippy dippy looking can there. I got white and green. I feel like I want to go out and hug a tree. Wow, that's... Uh, that's uh well, you should do because that's organic beer you have in your hand. Oh, organic beer. And that is a Pilsner. And for those of you who are beer fans, you know that way. Pilsner beer was created in Czech City of, that's right, Pilsner. And it's typically pale gold and a lower alcohol content, especially than some of the IPAs and stuff now that people are drinking, usually around 4 to 5%. How do you like that one? Is it is it refreshing? Or? It is refreshing. This is called Fresh Cut Peak Organic. Not a sponsor of our podcast, but hey, if you are a brewer and you would like to sponsor our uh, podcast, and really sponsoring at this point just means giving us free beer to drink on the air, we'll be happy to do that. Um, of course, they are not a sponsor, but Fresh Cut Peak Organic Brewing Company, I like it. A dry hopped Pilsner. Good. I like it. Perfect, right. perfect, perfect. It's a dry hot pilsner. If I had to match a beer for the death penalty, yeah. I'm going dry hot pilsner. Okay, all right. Okay, well, all right. So we are going to talk about the death penalty today. Um, it's in the news, uh, surprisingly enough, and we didn't plan it this way. We've been talking about this subject for a week or so for this podcast, and it just so happened that a few days ago at a campaign rally in Pennsylvania, Donald Trump made a campaign stop uh, in our home state and brought up the idea of using the death penalty on drug dealers. As you'll find out later, I don't know if he checked the Supreme Court recently on how the Supreme Court would probably interpret that, but I think it was probably a good uh, applause line for him. Uh, at his campaign stop. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, read a letter to the editor about uh, the Stoneman High shooter in which uh, a woman said, well, that guy uh, should get the death penalty. You know, a school shooter kills 17 people, innocent people. He needs the death penalty. So there's 
there's the death penalty is uh, and talking about it, its effectiveness or it not being effective, but it's uh, it's uh, a thing that always comes up when uh, people want to prevent uh, a certain uh, activity, and that's uh, they think this uh, the death penalty has deterrence, and of course in the case of when. So a lot of innocent people get killed. People are worried, uh, want retribution. They want some kind of vengeance for that. So the death penalty is a perennial subject and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll probe it in some depth today. Yeah, and it's also something that doesn't, it's really actually pretty small when you look at total numbers of people executed per year. It's out of proportion to how much it's discussed and how politically, how controversial it can be considering how little it's actually used, even in the states who are using it. So let's start with the Constitution, as we usually do. Um, though capital punishment isn't listed specifically in the Constitution, it is there. Uh, it's in the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment says the government cannot deprive you of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Well, implied in that is that they can deprive you of your life, liberty, or property when they use due process. So if they can deprive you of your life, obviously the death penalty was considered to be constitutional. Um, the founders, uh, those men who wrote the Constitution, though they had some varying ideas on the death penalty, and some of them were against the death penalty, it was certainly a normal part of the judicial system of crime and punishment. So I don't think it was controversial at all at the time whether there should be or should not be the death penalty when we were looking in the 1780s. That was pretty much a given. Now, but there's also another part of the Constitution, Jeff, and that's the Eighth Amendment. And when you start throwing this into the mix and the concept of evolving standards of decency, now things get a little gray. And how about you hit the Eighth Amendment a little bit and talk about that and how that plays a role in our discussion? Well, the Eighth Amendment uh, prevents excessive fines, excessive bail, and uh, cruel and unusual punishments. And like a lot of things in our Constitution and our politics, um, it, this, this uh, came from Great Britain. And the, the American Bill of Rights... Uh, was ratif the way it was ratified. It was almost copied word for word from the earlier English Bill of Rights. So this is an old concept, uh, older than the American Constitution, uh, that even though the death penalty uh, was something they accepted, uh, cruel and unusual punishment was not. Now, of, of course, uh, Matt, you know about the case of Titus Oaks. Titus Oaks. No, I don't. I've been teaching history for 25 years, and I know nothing about Titus Oaks. Well, uh, Titus Oaks is looked at as the example uh, that caused the English to put uh, the cruel and unusual, for, uh, the forbidding cruel and unusual punishment in the English Bill of Rights. He was uh, actually a perjurer. Uh, and his lies about a, a popish plot ended up getting uh, several people executed. And uh, he finally ac wrong, uh, wrongfully accused the queen, which didn't please the king. Nah, that's not going to go over well. No. Nah, and uh, so he was uh, 
convicted of multiple counts of perjury, and they couldn't give him the death penalty. So they wanted, but they didn't. I mean, the guy caused people to be killed through his false testimony. So what they did is they had him pilloried and stuck in stocks where people could right, throw things. Common for the time period. Yep. And then he was sentenced to be whipped through the streets of London five days a year for the <laughs> remainder of his life. And uh, th- this was this is something that could have caused his death in a very cruel and unusual way. And people looked at this, uh, and lawmakers looked at this, and this is one of the immediate uh, precursors to the English Bill of Rights, from which the American Bill of Rights was taken. I got a thousand questions on that. Like, did he get to pick the time of year? Was it like every two months? <laughs> you you knew what time of year it was. Could, could I t- could I do one day and take a month <laughs> off and then do another day? So, all right. So, cruel and unusual punishment and the idea of being protected against it is also part of our tradition. Um, our judicial and constitutional traditions. So those two things are baked into our constitution, um, the protection against cruel and unusual, and also the idea that capital punishment is a legitimate method of punishment. All right. So if we look at the history of the United States since 1700, uh, we have about almost 16,000 people have been executed in the United States. Um, I have some statistics here. I'll go over them quickly. Uh, 65 by burning, 130 by firing squad, over 9,000 by hanging, almost 600 by gas, uh, over 4,000 by electrocution, 1,200 by lethal injection, and 102 uh, by other means. The first documented case we have of an execution is Captain George Kendall. Uh, This was in 1608 in the Virginia colonies, and he was executed by firing squad for mutiny. Um, And some of this stuff, we give the numbers, you know, what I'd say there are 16,000 almost. I mean, some of this stuff is really hard to get numbers on simply because documentation is fairly weak. Documentation is lost. But we don't want to spend too much time in the 17th century. We want to really move ourselves up to the beginning of the writing of the Constitution because that's where the story is going to begin. Uh, in England, at the time of the writing of the Constitution, um, you can probably look at over 200 crimes for which you could be executed. This was a foundation of British uh, judicial system was to execute people. Um, and it just makes sense that the United States would also mirror some of that. Now, the colonies themselves would make their own laws, and their own laws would determine what is going to be a capital offense or not. And depending on which colony you were in, uh, you would be under different laws. New York was a little bit more aggressive in using the capital using capital punishment. Pennsylvania, being fall, uh, settled by the Quakers, was a little less aggressive. Uh, in using the capital punishment. So we're going to see discretion and we're going to see differences among the colonies, but they're all going to use it. And England certainly was using it very heavily. Yeah. uh, Under the reign of uh, Henry VIII, uh, they estimate as many as 72,000 people were uh, executed. And some of the common methods of execution at that time were boiling, burning at the stake, hanging, beheading, drawing and quartering. If you've ever seen the end of Braveheart, you know, the penalty for uh, treason in England, you would be racked, uh, then you would be disemboweled, and your intestines would be burnt in front of you. Uh, and then you would be quartered, and a part of you would be put in all four corners of the Commonwealth. 
So it was pretty harsh. And <laughs> that and the, and that stuff does happen in America too. Um, there are documented cases in Colonial Williamsburg, for example. Um, Colonial Williamsburg, being one of the more quote unquote metropolitan areas of the colonies, had a slave who was executed, and she was quartered and sent to the four corners of the colony, so to speak. It wasn't certainly as common as was taking place in the time period you're talking about, but it did occasionally happen even here in the United States or in colonial America. It's also important to note here also why they relied so much on capital punishment. Um, Jeff, you already touched upon some of the things, and we're going to hit those later on, sort of the modern reasons for capital punishment. And many of those are the same reasons that people in the 1700s and the early 1800s also embraced it. But there's also another reason, a kind of a hidden reason that people really aren't aware of, and that is how prisons worked. Um, prisons were not places for punishment. They did not have the resources for it. Prisons were basically holding pens while you're till your trial and then till your punishment could be delivered to you and because there wasn't uh, a holding cell for someone who committed murder or thieving horses capital punishment filled that gap for them um as england gets away from capital punishment and they do pretty quickly um by 1840 they really cut the reasons for delivering capital punishment down to the point really it's murder by this point. But they're also adopting penitentiaries and putting people in prison as punishment. And as they do that, they have an alternative to capital punishment. They don't have to kill everyone because now they have an alternate punishment. Yeah. And we mentioned that uh, Quakers and and PA uh, were uh, against capital punishment, or at least for restrictions on its imposition. And they they led uh, the movement to oppose the f- frequent imposition of the death penalty in England as well. We have a guy here in PA, Dr. Benjamin Rush. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he challenged the d- belief that the death penalty served as a deterrent. He said, no, it coarsens society. It doesn't serve as a deterrent. He gained the support of some other famous Americans and Pennsylvanians. Benjamin Franklin was one. And uh, the Attorney General of Philadelphia, uh, William Bradford. And they led Pennsylvania to become the first state to consider degrees of murder based on culpability. And in 1794, Pennsylvania repealed the death penalty for all offenses except first-degree murder. So you see both in England and the United States a reduction of the uh, frequency the death penalty will be imposed. The methods of execution were fairly common. Um, Usually hanging was primarily used because hanging is rather easy. All you need is a rope. Um, Firing squads would also be used. Um, in some extreme cases, you get the idea of pressing. Usually pressing was done. You put a board on someone, and you slowly pile rocks on top of them um, until it crushes them. And the idea was to get a confession out of them before you crush them. But primarily, we're looking at hanging, hangings and um, sh- being shot with a gun uh, for firing squad. As we move through the, eight, the 19th century and we get past the Civil War and industrialization, happens, we start looking for a new method of execution, something that's going to reflect a more modern world. And 
1890, William Kemmler becomes the guinea pig for this method of execution. As you could probably guess, it is electrocution. Uh, And this becomes the very modern way of killing people. And for them, this made sense too, just from observation. Uh, We had cities starting to become electrified. And as they were putting in alternating current, um, the lines, a place like New York, for example, uh, did not require their electrical lines to be buried. Other big cities like Chicago did. So if you see early photographs of New York with early electrical systems, it is a maze of wires above a city. And the insulation on them is not very good. And every once in a while, somebody working on one of these lines would fry. And they noticed that, man, that was quick, happened rather quickly. And the Kemmler execution doesn't go real well. Uh, he has to be given two jolts. Um, somebody says they've been better off just beating him with an axe and killing him that way. Uh, the room filled with smoke, um, and apparently it was pretty gross. But it is going to be the method of execution that most states will adopt going into the 20th century. Well, again, the death penalty itself is still at this time. Uh, it, it's legitimacy under the Fifth and Eighth Amendment. It's not really a question. But people are looking for possibly a more humane way to execute a person than a hanging. And hanging, uh, if someone doesn't weigh enough, it can take a long time for them to hang on the end of the rope and strangle or have their blood flow uh, cut off. If you oh, wait, weigh here, them I, down excessively. I have a I have a death penalty hanging trivia for you. Okay. All right, here you go. The origin of this of the phrase to pull one's leg. Is that from the death penalty? That is from the death penalty. As you said, if you did not weigh enough and you were dangling there, uh, if you had a good friend, he'd pull your leg for you and put more weight on you so your death would not linger. And you could linger up to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, depending on how light you were. Well, and if they weighed you down too much, it could just pop your head off. Right. And and so they were looking for a, a more humane way to kill. And we get back to this idea of, even though it wasn't used in the jargon of the time, evolving standard of decency. Right. There's There's this... Uh, limitation at first in England and then America of limiting the offenses that the death penalty will be used for. And then there's a um, a quest to execute a person in the quickest, basically the quickest way possible. I don't know if they're worried about much about pain, but they're certainly worried about doing it quickly and effectively and not making the death a lingering one. We have two things coming together here. We have the idea of making death more modern, making it quicker. Um, But we also have the idea that we're moving executions out of the public sphere into the private sphere. Executions used to be public. There was public executions. The idea was, is we're going to show everybody what happens to you. Um, Pennsylvania becomes the first state actually to move executions into a prison. And that happens in the early 1800s. But the last public execution in America, I think, happens in 1929, 1930, around there, maybe even a little bit later than that. And thousands of people showed up for that. So it turned into a carnival atmosphere. um, And that was, again, they didn't use the term yet. And this is going to come from a later Supreme Court case, this idea of evolving standards of decency. But that if we're going to execute people, 
It needs to be done in a respectful manner, not in this carnival setting where people are cheering and people are leering just to watch someone die. So not only are we looking to see make things more painless, quicker, modern, we're also in a way making it more professional by moving it indoors under a very controlled uh, environment. Yeah, and there's also a move, uh, again, we've talked about it in England and in the United States, uh, to make the punishment fit the crime and capital punishment begins to be seen as something that is only appropriate in the case where you take someone's life. Now, uh, it, it could be uh, used uh, relatively recently as a punishment for rape. That's the Supreme Court has said that is right. Unconstitutional. It, unconstitutional. So uh, there's also this idea that we have to keep it with proportionality. What is the right punishment for a particular crime? And is any, is any punishment or is uh, uh, any crime uh, worth the punishment of, of forcing someone to forfeit their life? And the answer the courts have come up with is still is yes, but it is taking someone's life. That's basically the way your life can be forfeited. Now, these death sentences are imposed. Uh, you want to mention the, the next evolution in yeah, uh, death penalty <laughs> technology? That's right. Um, one new and improved. Um, in the 1920s, states starting to embrace uh, the gas chamber. Um, and I guess the gas chamber doesn't have this real negative connotation like it does today because of the Nazis and World War II and what happens to the Jews and many others. So in 1920s, we don't have this negative view, uh, just the sound of the term gas chamber. So the idea was using a gas chamber and total, we have almost 600 people gassed in the United States. Uh, you sat in, basically, it was a cistern, a big steel cistern that they cut apart to work as a gas chamber. And you sat on a mesh chair. And underneath that chair was a cyanide tablet hovering above a bowl of some sort of acid, uh, sulfuric acid of some kind. And basically, the pellet dropped into the acid. You had a chemical reaction creating some sort of cyanide gas. I'm not a chemist, but I don't have to be a chemist. You know, this is going to be really nasty stuff. And you would breathe this in and you would die. In theory, this sounded really quick and easy. Um, but in reality, it wasn't. I mean, the first thing you're going to do is hold your breath because you don't want to breathe this in. Even if you're not afraid of dying, it's going to hurt really bad. So people held their breath for as long as they could. Eventually, the reflex takes over. They exhale, take a huge inhale of this, and they start convulsing uh, to the point where people are banging their heads on the pole that's holding them there, either to try to kill themselves or knock themselves out. Um, it is a pretty uh, violent death. On the internet, they don't. There's no executions. Pencil. Uh, there's no U.S. executions online. Though during researching this, I did find a a government video. I should say I don't know if it was government or not, but a test video of them gassing a rabbit with cyanide gas, and it's ugly. Uh, the rabbit is convulsing. I mean, clearly in pain, clearly in distress. This is not. This is not painless, easy. You just go to sleep. Right. And, uh, of course, all, all, all along here, there is another way of killing people uh, uh, and to enforce uh, the death penalty, and that is firing squad. 
And I believe Utah might be the last mm-hmm. of the states that have used that. Now, um, it might be familiar to people who have read the Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer, which was about the execution of Gary Gilmore. And this is how the death penalty was conducted in Utah. Uh, They would ask uh, people uh, to volunteer for it, and I think they took four. And uh, several thousand people volunteered with Gary Gilmore. Uh, Him and his... uh, a girlfriend at the time had gone on a, a, a senseless killing spree, just shooting gas taste in attendance and so forth. So there wasn't much sympathy for Gary. And then they gave everybody the same rifle. I believe it was a 30-30, but, uh, and they give four people the rifle. One person is going to fire a blank. They are. They all have to rate as being great marksmen. They are to, you know, really good marksmen. And then from about 10 yards away, they, they shoot the victim who has a target over their heart. That's where. They, and the idea is they all shoot at the same time. Obviously, the person is going to die. No one really knows and who shot him because there's a blank. And, and, and that's how that was conducted. But this, Utah doesn't do it anymore, do they? Well, the last time they, they actually used it in 2010. Okay. Um, now, sometimes, and this sometimes you'll hear people having choices. Like, you know, it's like almost like a buffet. How do you want to be executed? And they get a choice. And the reason for that choice is because when you are convicted of capital murder and you get your sentence, it is state law that dictates how you're going to be executed. And between the time of your conviction and your execution, if that law is changed and a new method of execution is introduced, they can't mandate that new method of execution for you. They have to give you the option of using a method of execution at the time of your conviction. No ex post facto law. Exactly. Um, And in Utah, the new method of execution was lethal injection, but there had been some botched lethal injections that seemed pretty grisly. And in 2010, uh, and I don't know if I have the name here written down, and I do not, um, the convicted killer chose the death penalty through um, not to the, chose uh, firing squad. Okay, and and then we come to the the method that is used now in all states, which is lethal injection. That was originally designed to be something uh, that pet owners are familiar with. You take, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us have had this experience. We take our beloved cat or dog at the end of their life. We don't want them to suffer anymore. And basically, the vet does what we call putting them to sleep. They go into an unconscious state. Uh, gradually, their breathing and heart stop, and that's the end of their lives. And and that was the idea behind lethal injection, although we know that some lethal injections haven't worked out that way. No, and one of the reasons for that, and this is one of these things you, I don't think you could have foresaw, is that you need to get an IV drip going. Well, a lot of these killers have been avid drug users, and they don't have veins left. They've injected and burned out and destroyed all their veins on their arms. They've injected, they've destroyed the veins in their feet everywhere. So there was just a case recently where they took two and a half hours trying to find a vein, and they were unable to do it. And they had to take the guy, I was just recent, had to take him back and say, well, we'll try again later. So this is even problematic, something that you would think would be simple. Again, we've, unfortunately, you and I both experienced this with dogs. Um, it's easy. You give the dog an injection, and I held my dog, and my 
Indy just went to sleep. It was painless. It seems like a very easy thing to do, and we screw it up. Well, yeah, uh, but the idea, again, though, is evolving standards right. of decency. If we're going to use the ultimate penalty, it it won't be done in a cruel and unusual way. So we have that. We have the the fact that um, the way the way uh, executions have been enforced has changed over time. We have the fact that the death penalty has become what courts say is more proportional to the offense. Right. And that there's another uh, factor in here in cruel and unusual punishment, and that is the way that this penalty is decided. Uh, what happens in a trial? What happens when the judge or jury sentence someone? Is this a penalty that is enforced uniformly and everybody has the same chance? Uh, everyone who is convicted of first-degree murder do, does everyone have the same chance of getting the death penalty? And the answer to that question in a pivotal case in 1972, Furman v. Georgia, was no. The Supreme Court said these death sentences are cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. For all of the people convicted of rapes and murders in 1967 and 1968, many just as reprehensible as these— the petitioners are among a capriciously selected random handful upon whom the sentence of death has, in fact, been imposed. So in this case, the Supreme Court is saying, it's not saying the death penalty in and of itself is cruel and unusual. It's not saying it's not proportional to someone who's taken someone's life. It's saying that the way that it is imposed is unconstitutional. Right, and let's, let's clarify all of that legalese. If you're black and you kill a white person, you're getting the death penalty. If you're a white person who kills a black person, you're not getting the death penalty. Well, certainly at this time, 1972. Exactly. And many years before that, you have to remember, it wasn't until 1965 that the Voting Rights Act right. was passed. You didn't have black people on juries in the South because they come from you know, the, the voter registration rules. So... Uh, the penalties were enforced more severely for black people than they were white people. And it wasn't a jury of your peers. No. So 72 is is the atomic bomb for, for us. Because this now says that there is discrimination. It's not equal protection of the law. The Basically, the court is saying that whether you get the death penalty or not is like whether you get struck by lightning or not. It's just random. You, it can't be random. So at that point, if you were on death row... In a state, um, now because the federal government will also have some people on death row, basically your life was changed, your sentence was changed to life in prison. So you had this emptying of the death row in 1972. And this is why when you see, when you do research online, you'll always see since 1976, this state has executed this many. You'll always see that date 1976 come up. Because between 72 and 76, basically states were not legally able to, to sentence someone to death. In 1976, states then started coming up with non-discriminating ways to determine who should get the death penalty and who shouldn't get the death penalty. In 1976, we start putting people on death row again. Right. In the case of Greg versus Georgia... The court sets out two broad guidelines uh, that legislatures must follow 
in order to craft a constitutional uh, capital uh, sentencing scheme. Uh, the first is that they must provide objective criteria to direct and limit the death sentencing discretion. Uh, the objectiveness of this criteria must in turn be ensured by appellate review. What that means is that they have to have uh, a very clear um, guidelines about when the death penalty will be enforced, and there will be an automatic review. That's what appellate review means. Uh, that means that a, a higher court is always going to look at the procedures involved to make sure they were fair before you execute someone. Uh, the next thing, it said the scheme must allow the sentencer, whether judge or jury, to take into account the character and record of an individual defendant. So what you have is what they call the bifurcation of uh, death penalty crimes. You have the one part where the jury or the judge decides a person is guilty or innocent, and then you have some testimony about the nature of the crime and the nature of the person, and then the judge or jury decides what penalty will be imposed, including the death penalty. If there's mitigating circumstances, there, that means is there something in this person's background or what happened at the crime scene that makes them seem less heinous, basically, uh, the judges and jury can take that into account and give the person maybe life imprisonment. If there's mitigating circumstances, was there torture? Is this a multiple? Aggravating murder? circumstances. Aggravate, excuse me, yeah. aggravating circumstances. Then those people, that can be taken into account and the death penalty can be imposed. Right. So what we really see here after 1976 is a fine tuning of the death penalty. And the Supreme Court has ruled that the death penalty is constitutional. It's ruled on the different methods of execution as being constitutional. And if you look at this laundry list of Supreme Court cases that comes out after 1976, it's really a fine tuning of this idea of who can be executed and who not and who cannot be. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned the uh, for the crime of rape. 1977, we get the court case Coker versus Georgia. Uh, and the idea of that now proportionality, you cannot be executed for the crime of rape. The Supreme Court says that is out of proportion. For the state, really the only crime the state can execute you for today is first degree murder with aggravating circumstances. Uh, most murderers do not get the death penalty. There has to be aggravating circumstances, which clearly we see in Florida, for example, with the killing of the 17 kids in Parkland High School, um, the state of Florida clearly thinks there's aggravating circumstances and is seeking the death penalty in that case. So anyway, if we take a look at some of the other Supreme Court cases, I don't like I don't want to turn this into a laundry list, so I'm not going to do them by name. But we start making decisions on you can't execute mentally retarded people. You can't execute someone who is under the age of 18. We really are fine-tuning now, and as we fine-tune, we get less and less and less people who are being executed uh, and even put on death row. If you look at – if we had a bar graph, and I know it's a podcast, so you can't see a bar graph, but if you were looking at a bar graph, you would see the bar graph trending down on the people who are being executed and the people – who are going on to death row simply because, again, this fine-tuning idea, we are limiting who can be executed. And these are good limits. We shouldn't be executing people who are mentally retarded. Uh, we shouldn't be executing someone who was 14 at the time of their crime. Um, and we're going to get more into this at the end when we talk about the modern arguments for and against. Uh, yeah, and, you know, again, we have 
various themes that have been there from the start of the imposition of the death penalty. Uh, you know, are we doing this uh, to, as a deterrent so people won't do this particular crime again? Are, is a society acting out of some kind of retribution and that, that, that society needs to make a statement about a particular crime uh, in order to uphold moral standards? Is, is the death penalty some type of prevention? Well, and of course, it's prevention if you kill the person who they right. can't do that crime again. But uh, there's these reasons that have been advanced from the death penalty uh, from the beginning. Do you want? To, I think at this point, we've gotten ourselves through the Constitution. We got ourselves through the history of it. And I think now it's time to get down to brass tacks and really ask the question, why are we doing it? And does it make sense in the 21st century? We are one of the few nations on earth that still execute. Matter of fact, if you look at Western nations, quote unquote, Western nations, we're about it. The only nation monetarily that looks the same as us, well, not the same as us in uh, our demographic, but certainly money would be Japan. Japan still has the death penalty. Singapore, maybe? Yes, Singapore does as well. Um, Though Singapore certainly does not I mean they, they certainly embrace cruel and unusual punishment yeah, yeah. At, when they're caning people. You know, I don't know if that's a great comparison, but you could go to Singapore and not feel that you are in a third world nation. You are in a modern society. Right. Um so let's take a look at some of the arguments for the death penalty and see if they hold water. Um the first one is the death penalty is an effective deterrent. Two ways of looking at this. Number one, as you kind of said tongue in cheek, uh, certainly stops a person from doing anything but else. Prevention. I don't know about pre- a deterrent for right. other people. For doing it certainly that. prevents them. But the idea that this is a deterrent, um, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one because honestly, there just is no evidence for it. Um, this has been studied again and again and again. Um, and th- in no way can we, and I'm not going to say no way because maybe we can torture the, the data a little bit, but there is no meaningful deterrent considering the cost and considering the controversy of the death penalty to say that we're going to put people to death and somehow this is going to be a deterrent as a whole for people who are going to commit murder. Well, I think they've studied criminals who commit violent crimes and the majority of them uh, feel at the time they're not going to be caught. They're surprised. Well, they're, there you go. I mean, if they feel they're not going to be caught— they're not going to be afraid of the death penalty. And, of course, some of these terrible things, like these school shootings, you know, the killers at Columbine, they turn the weapons on themselves right. at the end. We know at uh, the shooting at the elementary school in Connecticut, the the killer turns the weapon on himself in the end. So to, to say that that is the death penalty will deter them, that's, that's not a factor. Now, whether sometime someone thinking about a murder— uh, is then thinking, well, maybe I'll be killed, and therefore I won't do it. That might happen, and it, to tell you the truth, it probably has happened. It just doesn't happen frequently enough that we can statistically show, well, geez, you know, the death penalty is, 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 is fantastic. We're cutting murders in half because of its imposition. That hasn't been shown. Right, yeah, and you, you could probably make an argument that more people, have been, more innocent people have been put to death than people have actually thought about. Well, I'm not. I 
I'm not going to kill my neighbor Joe because, geez, I might get the death penalty too. You're right. Most people commit violent crimes, A, don't think they're going to get caught, or B, never plan on surviving the crime anyway. It's sort of, they know this is a suicide mission. It's one of the interesting things that happened in Parkland that he actually was captured. It's sort of a rare thing that the shooter at a mass shooting is captured. Many times uh, it's either suicide by their own weapon or suicide by police that they sort of let themselves be shot. They anticipate that. All right, so let's chalk that one up to, no, sorry, uh, no real statistic evidence for it. Okay, how about this? The death penalty is cheaper than feeding a murderer for life. Yeah, and uh, obviously we would get into ages here. You know, the the 90-year-old <laughs> uh, murderer would take less room and board than the uh, 20-year-old. But even given that, because the Supreme Court has mandated appellate review, uh, among other reasons, the, uh, the path to getting someone who's committed a murder— to being executed is is a long one, and it, it will involve many reviews. Some some of our listeners might be familiar with the the murder of Lori Show here that happened in Lancaster County. That's uh, where we're talking from, and the the case went uh, initially from uh, the state court where the murderers were convicted. Uh, to a federal court because of a writ of certiorari. And then that had to be overseen by another federal appellate court, which reversed that decision. Then it went back to the state and then went up through the state system, went to the state appellate court and to the state Supreme Court, and eventually back to the federal court. Where it all started. Where it, well, where her appeal started right. the, uh, of the murder. And... It, this this cost Lancaster County the better part of a million dollars. Now, eventually, the persons this case it wasn't the death penalty. It was a question. It was the imposit, the guilt or innocence of the party, and would their life sentence because they were uh, uh, sentenced to life in prison without parole, and that sentence was upheld. But this is typical of these death pen, uh, of these uh, murder sentences as well. They just go to appeal, to appeal, to appeal. The courts are trying to desperately make sure that no one innocent is being executed. And and that's noble. I mean, yeah. you have to do that because what we're seeing is that there's a lot of innocent people out there. You know, you would expect some innocent people to be in prison. And I, I read once where an estimate is three to four percent of everyone in prison is probably innocent. Um, and obviously, there's innocent people in prison. The judicial system is not perfect. We do the best we can. There's good people in charge. The juries are doing the best they can. But we're humans, and we're going to get stuff wrong. But you would think with the death penalty, this wouldn't happen. But what we're seeing is DNA evidence again and again and again is is exonerating people on death row. You didn't do the crime. And I think I read that they think that there's at least 10 people have been executed, that there are serious doubts about their guilt at the time of execution. Now, you'll hear people say, well, we can't prove that anyone guilty, I mean, innocent has been executed. Well, that's true because once they're executed, the court, the, the court stop. We just stop researching it and we turn our attention or the people who want to do this sort of research, turn their attention to people who are still on death row. But in that case, uh, we have about 75 people on death row. 
in the United States, and they have been freed before they were executed on the basis of right. DNA evidence. So, like any, no one would expect any legal system to be a hundred percent fair and accurate for every uh, crime to be punished in a similar manner. That's an awful hard get. So the one thing you have to accept if you are for the death penalty, if, if you want it to be imposed, is that there will be some what you could refer to as collateral damage. There will be, unless you expect perfection out of the system, some innocent people being killed. So if you're for it, you have to weigh that. Is what you get out of the death penalty worth the fact that occasionally, not, not often, but occasionally, you're going to kill a, a person that's innocent of the crime. Now, if you're interested in something like this, you can go to the Texas Department of Corrections, and, and Texas executes more people than, uh, than any state. And on their website, they have the final words of everyone who's been executed. Oh, geez, it goes back years and years and years. And you can read the final statements. And I will tell you that the vast majority of the final statements are apologies. And I'm sorry for doing this. I'm sorry for tearing your family apart. Uh, most statements are about love. Uh, I love you, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there are, you get there, people just blatantly say, I'm innocent and you're, you're murdering me. Now, is that, can we trust that person? I mean, what do they have to lose at that point? You know, I'm not saying that those pronouncements are accurate, but it does say something to me. Oh, and I, and I would trust the people who have studied this in DNA evidence. I mean, Northwestern University was a pioneer of this, and they looked at people on death row in, in Illinois, and eventually they convinced the Republican governor there, Thompson, not to sign any more death warrants because they convinced him that some of the people on death row were, in fact, using DNA evidence, some of the people on death row were innocent. So he stopped signing them. He didn't want to be part to executing a innocent person. So the next one is... And I, I will say that I am at this moment pretty anti-death penalty simply because there's so many things that – there's so many holes in this thing. But this one is if there's – if something holds water for me, it's this one. Murderers deserve to die. The idea of an eye for an eye sort of thing. Right. And uh, I think there's part of me certainly – that believes that some crimes are so heinous, so awful, that the the people who have committed them need to be made of an example of. And I would give the example of the Nuremberg trials after World War II. The people that carried, planned, and executed the Holocaust uh, created mass murder on a scale that was unimaginable before that in which civilized people recoiled from hardened soldiers, Russian and American, as they went into these concentration camps, were horrified at what they found there. Experiments were done on children. It was absolutely horrible. And I support the idea of the Nuremberg trials. I think the civilized countries of the world who had won World War II needed to make a statement. You can't do that. There are things called crimes against humanity, and we will punish them. Now, it was only a handful. Right. 24, I forget. It was only a handful that actually were sentenced and a slightly smaller group that was executed. 
But I think the symbolism of that was important. And there are certainly crimes that happen uh, on a lesser level that are terrible. And you, you know, as a, as a civilized person, you wonder what can the response be? You're, the, you know, you're certainly not going to rehabilitate Herman Gehring. You know, you're not going to rehabilitate Adolf Eichmann. Uh, so what's the civilized response? And to me, uh, using the idea of, of you, even proportionality doesn't work there because there is no, nothing you can do unless right. you want to execute six million, you know, or, or in the case of the Holocaust, 11 to 12 million you know, Germans for doing, you can't do that. So the symbolic uh, nature of the, the trial and executions, I think was important. Right. But what's telling to me here is the fact that you had to go to that extreme, that you had to go to the stream of the Holocaust, the greatest crime of the 20th century to- Any century, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> any century. The idea that murders deserve to die. You know what I mean? Um, do they deserve to die? I mean, my personal opinion is, of course they deserve to die. You know what I mean? As someone who rapes a child, you know, I, it's hard to argue mercy for these people. But to me, that's not what the argument is. The argument is, is can we trust the government to do this? All right. So we're going to get back to that. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more. I want to move on here. Um, the next one is the biblical portion of it, an eye for an eye. I don't know if you want to touch on this because we will have like a little Old Testament versus New Testament idea. The Old Testament of being a vengeful God, eye for an eye. But then we also get the New Testament Jesus of turn the other cheek. So there is a really pick your pick the God you want. You want the Old Testament God or you want the New Testament God? Well, and uh, and you also have to keep in mind that that the even in the Old Testament. The idea that you would be punished in proportion to what you do, which is an eye for an eye, if you take someone, a tooth for a tooth, and also a life for a life, um, is actually probably a limit on what the society is going to do for you. You're right. We're not going to punish you out of proportion to what you do. We'll do exactly the same. So you have... Uh, a standard there that is, it, it sounds cruel today, like, oh, someone's advocating excessive violence, but it's actually a statement of proportionality. And the other thing you have to keep in mind in any, when you bring the Bible into any discussion, is the whole Bible. What does it say? For instance, in the Bible, it says that if a man accuses his new bride of not being a virgin, and the parent can't prove she was at the time of uh, the marriage, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. Uh, now, this, again, when you bring the Bible, you have to bring in the context of the times. Certainly no one in today, I hope no one today, would think this would be uh, a, a crime proportionate to not being a virgin at the time you're married. That you well, even that deserve. would even be considered a crime. Yes, yeah. Well, adultery has you know that's not even a crime. We couldn't have our current president or, or several others <laughs> as we know, uh, hold that office if that was a crime. So uh, and and even then, now Jesus introduces another standard uh, about adultery in a famous scene in the Bible. He comes. Uh, across a woman being stoned, and he says he was without sin 
uh, cast the first stone, basically meaning you don't have a right to throw stones at someone uh, who has committed adultery because you're a sinner yourself. So when we bring the Bible in, like you said, there's there's different aspects of it we have to consider. What was a, a capital crime when certain parts of the Bible was written and we've things we've rejected since then. And of course, is Jesus' call for mercy. Uh, so these are things we have to consider. And there is a philosophical element to the death penalty, because after all, you're considering this basic question. When is it okay to take a human life? Right. And I, I like you brought two things up there that I thought were really interesting. Number one, even then we're looking at the evolving standards of decency. Um, from then today. And also a, a really unique way of looking at it, this eye for an eye is a limiting factor. It does limit you. No, if someone steals, no, you don't get to torture them and kill them. We're going to take their hand because yeah. that limits you. Yeah. So it is a, it is a way how you look at it. What, what if then- somebody takes an eye, you don't take two eyes. It's, right. a, it's, it's a limitation. And even the evolving standards of decency they're back there between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. Jesus is saying there's another standard here that we need to use. So that idea of evolving standards has been around for a long time. All right, so the last one is, and I I don't like this idea of creating a straw man to knock down. I not, not This is not my intention here. Like I said, I am leaning, not leaning, I am anti-death penalty. Uh, I don't want to create this straw man that I can simply knock down. So I'm trying to come up with the best arguments for the death penalty. And the last one is, and again, this may hold water, the family deserves closure, that this is going to provide closure for a family. And I I will speak to this first and let you counter me. Uh, Two thoughts on this. Number one, I hate to say it, but we don't give justice, we don't give crimes based on what the victim thinks, what the victim wants. Um, Yes, do the families deserve closure? Absolutely. They didn't deserve to have a loved one killed. But what what the victim's family wants, to me, is not, not, not that it's not important, but it can't be a standard in which we base punishment. Because if it is, then we are going back to the time of the barbarians. If someone rapes your daughter or your wife, I mean, of course you want that person killed. Who wouldn't? That rage you would have inside of you. I understand that, but we can't base punishment on that. The second part of this is I would argue for the vast majority of people, it doesn't provide closure. We re-victimize these people again and again and again. We promise them in a way, we promise at the courts that we are going to give you the death penalty, but we don't. To give you a statistic, in California, there's almost 900 people on death row since 1976. They've executed 13 of them. That's not closure. I feel that the families believe that they've been victimized, that they're getting out of their punishment. So I think it's actually doing the exact opposite of what proponents would advertise. Well, that's an argument in part for the the delays and imposition of the death penalty, not necessarily directly against the idea of closure. And uh, we, you know, we had the terrible bombing in Oklahoma City. 168 people were killed. Uh, Timothy McVeigh was convicted of it. Some of those ki- uh, people were killed were children in a nursery, and they, the federal government, did execute him. And they, and some people watched, and it was also shown on closed circuit television. Some of the family members wanted to watch his execution. Now, 
you can say that leads to bloodlust, but you can also look at it this way. If people are going to accept the judicial system as legitimate, as a force to keep them protected, in lieu of them taking it into their hands, in lieu of vigilanteism, um, for some people that would include killing the person that killed a family member. And some people have said they got closure from watching an execution. Sure, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. Uh, but, you know, for me, it comes back to this. I'm okay. Personally, I'm okay with the proportionality of the death penalty. If you take someone's life, especially in it with aggravating circumstances, I'm okay. If you would be put to death, I do think society uh, uh, can stand up oddly enough or contradictorily enough, stand up for life as it did after World War II by taking someone's life. Uh, but the thing is, I can't get myself to support the death penalty because I know that those things that I would want the death penalty to do are mitigated by the fact that we'll take innocent people's lives. And whatever I think about the death penalty, I just don't think it's worth taking an innocent person's life. And I know that that's going to happen. The system is not perfect. If we could have the perfect system where it's never wrong, we would embrace a death penalty. I found this quote by a guy by the name of David Burge. Uh, he's an attorney, and he's a leader of the Georgia Republican Party. And he sums up the death penalty this way, and, and I agree with him 100%. Capital punishment runs counter to the core conservative principles of life, fiscal responsibility, and limited government. The reality is that capital punishment is nothing more than expensive, wasteful, and risky government program. And that is, in summation, I couldn't have said it better. Okay. Well, you know what? We both think about the death penalty now. Hey, if you disagree with us, we would love to hear, with, hear from you. Let us know why we're wrong. If you tell us something interesting or exciting, you know what? We will share it in the next podcast and make you world famous because you, as you may, well, of course you don't know, we have listeners in Australia. That's amazing. So if you are listening from Australia, please drop us a line. It's historypoliticsandbeer at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you guys. Until next time, uh, enjoy a beer with a friend and solve the world's problems.